This is exactly right. Hello, hello. Welcome to My Favorite Murder. I am your guest host, Kara Clank. I am the co-host of That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast, also on the Exactly Right Network. And I'm really excited to be hosting today. I have known Karen and Georgia for a long time. Fun fact, I was at the Halloween party where Karen and Georgia met for the first time. A small apartment party here in beautiful Los Angeles, a Halloween party. Karen was dressed as a nurse. Georgia was dressed as Glenn Danzig. I was dressed as a three blind mice, but my third blind mice, it was me and my husband, and we had a third mouse who got social anxiety and didn't come. So we were two blind mice. But I remember them meeting there. I met, That's where I met Karen. I had met Georgia before, and I believe that party's where I met Karen. And I just have been friends with them ever since, and I love them. And I'm so beyond thrilled to be on their network. Obviously, they're They have made a huge mark with My Favorite Murder. It's one of the OG true crime podcasts. And I'm just so excited that we get to bring our little SVU slash true crime slash comedy podcasts to their family. And yeah, let's get started. Okay, the first story that I've chosen to highlight in today's episode is from the brilliantly funny Karen Kilgariff, who I share initials with. And it is episode 91, live at the Sony Center in Toronto. And it is the story of... Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, a famous Canadian couple, also known as the Ken and Barbie killers, who, I mean, committed just heinous, heinous crimes. But we also covered this, I believe, in our second episode of That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. And I just love I picked both my both the stories I picked for Karen and Georgia today are ones that we've also covered because I just like hearing the way we cover them in different ways. And I love the way Karen tells it. And you're going to as well. Here you go. Uh, <laughs> so, on to the murder part. Oh, right. Oh, shit, girl. I yeah. Saw did the, you see it? I did. I'm gonna... Okay, so. <laughs> this you're is a, a heavy sne- You're a sneaky peek. I can't help it if I have perfect vision. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you're a really good upside-down reader. <laughs> this well, is a heavy hitter. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Heavy hitters episode, I think. Happy, it, heavy hitter, but it's also... It's also apology makeup work for the city of Toronto and the country of Canada as a whole. We owe you guys. Guys, long, long ago in 1968 when we started this podcast, <laughs> and I thought it was kind of like, I thought it was what we were talking about it to be when we first conceived of it, which was, hey, you and me will sit in your living room and we'll just like talk about serial killers and murder and true crime and stuff that we're kind of fascinated by casually conversation <laughs> and um very quickly we learned that that is absolutely not the way you can talk about true crime because Mm-mm. you have to know years and cities and facts and <laughs> dates and the truth is really important it's a big part of it yeah and i think it was around like the third episode yep. i <laughs> thanks they knew they were ready to tell you because they're pits oh um i did this one and i talked through it as if it happened to my neighbor 
<sighs> I was so young back then. Um, <laughs> the whole reason I wanted to do it is because I had one, actually like one person away from, one degree away story that I love to tell all the time. Um, and that's what I was building the whole concept around, but like I didn't do any research at all. And I remember some girl emailing or tweeting, but she was just like, that was horrible. <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, that was horrible. You're right. And then this whole time I've been saving it to come to Girl. Toronto to redo it. <laughs> Cause I felt bad. It was quite a, it was quite an awakening to realize that I just signed up for a podcast where I had to do a fucking book report every week. Like it's not my jam as yeah. you can well, as you well know. <laughs> But anyway, uh, tonight I'm going to do uh, the case of the schoolgirl killers, the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamalka. Uh, for visitors, boyfriends, girlfriends, people who have never come before. Dads. We're not, we're not cheering for the murderers. Mm -mm. We're not. It feels like we are. <laughs> I understand why that would bother a person and maybe scare them to death. Uh-huh. That's not what's happening. <laughs> At least with me. <laughs> I shouldn't speak for everybody. All right. I got most of the research from uh, this retelling of the factual story um, from the A&E series biography that mm. they did on these murders, which is actually incredibly thorough. Oh. And they had a Scottish narrator, which I oh. think is bold. Definitely. The right? Canadian guy was sick that day. <laughs> The Canadian guy that they had for it. Well, it was YouTube, so it's international, I guess. Okay. Unless they do only Canadian YouTube here. Like they, that's the thing they don't tell you about oh, Canada. Shit. They fucking take over your YouTube. And the internet, like, this site can't be seen, Canadian. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The other chunk of information or bunch of information that I got was I stumbled upon this amazing article on a website called The Walrus. Um, mm, yeah. It's so good. That's a good one. So a girl, a woman named Stacey May Fowles wrote this. She is from Scarborough. She, she was 11 years old at the time that the Scarborough rapist was at the height of like his reign of terror and she wrote a beautiful article that I highly recommend you go read called Boy Next Door. It's wow. amazing. It like, I, I cried at the end. It was really fucking great. Um, and it made me really happy. And I stole, stole, stole. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Paul Bernardo was born 1964 in Scarborough, Ontario. Um, he was the youngest, uh, child to Kenneth and Marilyn Bernardo. An unhappy couple. Isn't that how these always start? I mean, what, what couple that we know in these stories is happy? And, oh, or sober. <laughs> yeah. Um, his father would later face charges of being a peeping Tom and a pedophile. Oh and uh, he also molested Paul's sister. So bad things were happening from jump for Paul. Um, he also physically, verbally abused his whole family, and he often called his wife bitch and big fat cow. Um, his mother was a depressive. I wonder why. And she'd also, she'd often leave the family for the weekend and just go stay with her family. And after a while, um, in this family, things got so bad that she just went down and lived in the basement. Whoa. 
Yeah. That's how some people cope. <laughs> just, you go as low as you can. Just get way down there by the Christmas decorations. So, <laughs> so dark. It's just like, um, mom, is there any milk? Left? That's okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. So, um, although Paul Bernardo was described as a happy child as a youth, he, when he joined the Boy Scouts, all the, uh, people, the leaders noticed that he really loved starting fires. And that was his Boy Scout jam. Well, aren't they supposed to start fires? I mean, they're Boy supposed Scouts? to. I got scared for a minute, but then I was like, wait a minute. But it's like, you get your badge, uh-huh, and, then, you... and then you don't need to start a whole bunch of other fires. <laughs> okay, got it, got it, got it. Is the thing. Smart. So, uh, 1981, when he was 16, um, he found out that Kenneth wasn't his biological father, and he lost his shit, obviously. Mm-hmm. Although, in retrospect, I would feel pretty good about it. Yeah, that's a positive. The peeping Tom is not your dad. Yeah. Quit crying. Everything's fine. <laughs> but, of course, he was 16. This had been his life. It's like he found it. His whole life was a lie. So he uh, was furious at his mother. He blamed his mother for the whole thing. Started calling her slut and whore. Um, you know. And... Uh, she started calling him bastard all the time. Just fucking good Jeez. time Sunday to Sunday at Bernardo's <laughs> house. Come over for dinner. You're going to love it. Um, uh, okay, so after he graduates from high school, he gets a job with Amway. You, uh, oh. Are you guys familiar with Amway? It's like a pyramid scheme. It's weird. They just send, they sell a bunch of different shit, but it's like really the point is that you get more people that you know to come in and sell this weird, like, laundry detergent and shit. Um, it's just a pyramid scheme. It's like, Karen, have you noticed how clean my shirt is? I actually yeah. did notice that here at lunch. Like, <laughs> be, be with that one of us, yes, right? Exactly. I want my shirt to be that clean. Um, they're really not that clean. Um, but what he really picked up from working there was this, the, the what they call the... Um, polemic sales culture. Didn't look it up. Not sure what it means. But what I assume it means is pushy, pushy, pushy. Like they don't take no for an answer and they kind of like get you from every direction. They're super manipulative. Um, or it could mean casual. Who knows? <laughs> That's the joy of this podcast. It's all question marky. We have to stay true to some of our roots. Yes. Or else it won't be the podcast you listen to. That's right. I had to leave one thing unresearched yeah. just so you knew I was still me. Yeah. I gotta be me. Okay. He starts using these sales techniques to pick up women. Um, by the time he begins, <laughs> yeah, because women love detergent. <laughs> um, by the time he starts uh, going to school at the University of Toronto at Scarborough, he is d- displaying. Sure, go raccoons. Um, (laughs) um, He's displaying all the signs of being a psychopath. Uh, Charming, outgoing, life of the party, but also an incredibly sinister dark side that only a couple people know about. Like his girlfriends Mm. who keep on breaking up with him. All of his relationship like length time lengths just keep getting shorter and shorter because women get go out with him and they're just like 
Sorry, you're not allowed to call me a slut. I have only known you for three days. Oh. Okay, we'll see you later. Um, so, uh, he actually threatened to kill um, a couple of his girlfriends if they ever told how abusive he was to them in their private life. Oh, my God. Um, he was fixated on conquering women. He, he was just obsessed with picking them up, having sex with them, and then making them do whatever he wanted. Um, all right, so... That's Paul Bernardo, in a nutshell. There's, I'm sure there's tons of other things to say about it. But now, Carla, this is because that obsession that he had, making women do whatever he wanted, that's where Carla Homolka comes into the scene. She it was born in 1970 in Port Credit, Ontario. Her father was a traveling salesman and an alcoholic, of oh. course. Um, she had two younger sisters, Lori and Tammy. Carla was also a bright student. Um, she was... Uh, she... Oh, she, their father was drunk, was a drunk that would insult the whole family, and then he would go down into the basement. What the fuck? Isn't that fucking weird? Yeah. What are the chances? It's a, Is that a thing here? <laughs> They're like, yeah, no, everyone's parents said that. It's oh, not. Yeah, that's, that's Canada. <laughs> that's where all the Kit Kats are. <laughs> they just don't tell America, don't tell the U.S. about us. It's that, what if it's very healing to go into the basement? Yeah. It's actually very good for you. They're just like, that's our secret. <laughs> it's good for your skin. Um, okay, so. Uh, also, when um, Carla's mother found out that her father was having an affair, she told him it was fine and to invite the mistress in for a menage a trois. So there's a lot of bad relationship patterning for if, both of these people. If I had a tiny red flag, I would check it right here. Oh. Here you go. It would be fun. <clears throat> okay. So uh, she was described as a child as being stubborn, um, domineering. Um, she, re she was a rebel in high school. She cut herself. She would always claim that she was going to commit suicide to get attention. Um, she graduated in 1988 and she became a full-time veterinary technician up until that last part. That was so me, <laughs> so me. Okay. In May of 1987, um, in Scarborough, a 21 year old woman gets off the bus. She's followed by a, a man who was on the bus as well. And, um, he comes up from behind, assaults her, and she ends up being the first victim of the Scarborough rapist. Um, and the, over the next 13 months, these assaults continue and they escalate very quickly. Um, the Scarborough rapist begins raping women orally, vaginally, and anally, cutting them or penetrating them with a knife. Uh... Um, he chokes them, he punches them in the face, he stole one victim's ID, noted her home address, and then threatened <gasps> to kill her family. Uh... Uh, he broke another victim's arm. Um, all the victims were attacked from behind, so none of them saw his face, but they all described him as a tall, young uh, man with light hair. Um, while he was attacking them, he made them call themselves degrading names, like slut and whore. Mm. Um, so uh, the police call in the FBI immediately to profile this rapist, which is a great move, and they bring in... Um, FBI agent Greg McCreary. You have seen this guy on every crime show there is. He is the guy, he's the FBI agent that, with the gray hair who looks really tired of crime. <laughs> like he's like so fucking sick of people being bad to each other. So like when he's explaining stuff, he's kind of quiet like this, but he's just, he's kind of like 
man's inhumanity to man. That's what he's saying. No matter what he's actually saying, that's just always what he's saying. I love Greg McCreary. Okay. So, um, he does a profile on the rapist. He says this is a sadistic rapist with a high probability of escalation. Um, young, in his early 20s, local, intelligent, high-functioning, in a dependent wow. living situation, so probably living with his family. That's so crazy that he was able to determine all... I fucking... Yeah. Yeah. They know all that shit. And then a psychopath, obviously. Um, so in April of 1988, um, a 19-year-old woman is attacked after getting off the bus. She was actually pulled between two houses and raped and yelled for help, and the people in the houses heard her and didn't respond. No, guys. Yeah. That's not how we... That's not how we do it. No. Um, so the next month, the total number of known Scarborough rapist victims had risen to seven. Um, so this is, a little, this is a little bit crazy. Constable Vic Clark told the press, quote, don't expect people to watch out for you if you happen to come back at 1 a.m. in the morning off the bus. Ooh. <laughs> Like the police? (laughs) Right. Like the police. He said, it'd be nice to think that you can go anywhere you like nowadays, but don't put yourself in a vulnerable position. Mm. Hold on. Hold your hate because (laughs) the same month, Alderman John Mackey proposed a curfew for women. Oh. For women. Finally. Get him off the street. We've been waiting to be told what time we're safe. <laughs> Just the logic there is, yeah. you're, cur- you're curfewing the gender that is not raping anybody, okay? No, no, no. Come on. Come on. In a refreshing turn, the Toronto Transit Commission instituted its request stop program, right? So, which meant that women who rode the bus at night could tell the bus driver, you can drop me right here in front of my fucking house and you didn't have to wait till the next bus stop so that women could get delivered wow. exactly to where they needed to be. Wow. That's, that's what you do. That's problem solving right there. Moving here immediately. Um, okay. October 17th, 1987, Carla Homolka is now age 17 and she meets Paul Bernardo, age 23, in a hotel restaurant in Scarborough. Two hours later, they're having sex in her hotel room. Um, which, no judgment. Hey, look. Yeah. If there were anybody else, we'd be into it. <laughs> the friends who were with both of them that day said that the chemistry was palpable, like it was in the air, and, like it always is when two psychopaths meet and fall in love. <laughs> So, do you, Stephen, will oh, you put up that first picture of the cu- of the happy couple? Oh, Barbie and Ken. Look at those warm, welcoming eyes oh. on both of them. They're just... Wouldn't you love to sit in a hotel restaurant and stare across at her satanic, <laughs> satanic eyes? And then his, whatever they're doing, eyes? And his tiny, tiny teeth with a fake <laughs> smile. <laughs> surrounding them. He's like, this is what humans do when cameras come out. This is it. <laughs> Happiness. Ay, well, Carla's family thinks that Paul Bernardo is great. They, they don't mind the age difference. Her parents don't mind the age difference. He's smart, good looking. He's trained to be an accountant. Um, her sisters think of him as the brother they never had. Soon, mm-hmm. um, he's coming to her. She still lives with her parents. Um, and soon she's dri- he's driving to her house a, a, like a couple times a week. 
I think it was an 80 mile drive mm-hmm. um, from Scarborough to St. Catharines, which is where she lived. Um, she brags to her friends about how mature her 23 year old boyfriend is. Within a year, she's confiding to them that he has become verbally abusive to her. Oh, fuck. Um, but she always forgives him. Uh, December 24th, 1989, they take a trip to Niagara Falls and they get engaged. Um, did someone applaud? No. <laughs> I think someone took their compact out of their purse. <laughs> Because they have something in their eye and like... They're like, I love love and I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) It's like one snap. And she's just like, shit. Um, Okay, so they plan to marry in spring of 1991. Um, The family's thrilled. In May of 1990, which is six months later, the Scarborough police release a composite sketch of the Scarborough rapist based on all of the victims um, telling the police sketch artist. So can we see that composite sketch? <gasps> oh, I'm sketch? so excited. Oh, Stephen, I wish you would have cropped that up a little higher. <laughs> Fucking. Why do we pay you? Oh my God, he left. He ripped off his mustache and left. <laughs> He looks like a fucking Nazi youth. He looks like he's in the style council. He looks... Can I add another one? Yeah. He looks like when you walk by like a cheap hair salon and they have photos <laughs> in the windows of what people... Uh, yeah. This is the... the called the Scarborough Rapist. <laughs> I hate to say it out loud, but I love the Scarborough Rapist look. I, is it wrong? <laughs> I think the sweep over would look great on my giant forehead. Okay. Well, here's what's crazy is Paul Bernardo's friends and his coworkers Mm-mm. see this Mm-mm. and they're like, ring, 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 911 or whatever it is in Canada. Hello. <laughs> Get me the fucking police right now. Shut up. A ton of people that he worked with and that were friends with him called the police and were like, wow. that's Paul Bernardo. And can we do the side-by-side comparison? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, shit. I don't see it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Fuck, man. Um, okay. So the police bring him in for an interview. He's polite, he's charming, and he's calm, like any good psychopath would be. Mm-hmm. He volunteers his DNA. What? what? It can't be you. Mm. Um, they collect hair, blood, and saliva samples that are sent to the lab where they will sit for <gasps> two years. I don't like that. It's 1990. Um, okay. So then he moves in with Carla uh, and her parents, in St. Catharines, and suddenly the Scarborough rapes stop. That's crazy. Um, he tells Carla that, um, so this is, this is where it gets, I mean, we knew this was going to happen, but this is so fucked. So he tells Carla that she can't give him the one thing he really wants, which is her virginity, because she already gave that away. <sighs> um, so she can still give it to him, just through the person closest to her, no, no. her 15-year-old sister, Tammy. And Carla agrees. So on December 23rd, uh, after the whole rest of the family goes to bed, Paul and Carla invite Tammy to stay up with them after the... Um, and Carla has crushed sleeping pills and animal tranquilizers um, that she stole from her job. Oh, my God, as a vet? Yeah. It's so dark. Yeah. Um, into her drink. She loses consciousness. Um, Carla puts a rag soaked with the drug hal- halothene over her face. Paul rapes her. 
When Paul is done, he tells Carla he wants her to rape her. Ugh. She does. All of it is on videotape. So, in the middle of that, uh, Tammy begins to vomit and then choke on her own vomit. And Paul and Carla rush, put her clothes back on her, and then call an ambulance. Um, In the early hours of December 24th, 1990, Tammy Homolka is pronounced dead. And aside from the mysterious burn marks on her face, which uh, Carla and Paul say must have been rug burns, um, her death is ruled an accident. Um, a month later, Paul and Carla move out of her parents' house in St. Catharines. They move into a two-story house in Port de Lucie. I did it right? Ugh. Good job. Thank you. Because I spelled it, it looks like de Luisi, kind of, a little bit. <laughs> you just went for it? That could have, I really did. I'm proud of you. Thank you so much. It was really fucking scary. No, it's terrifying. There's so many people here. Like right you guys now. made us share not you guys, but this podcast has made us scared of saying places in this world. We never say it right ever. Yeah. I mean it's guess it's not your fault, it's our fault. But still, it's your fault. <laughs> um, okay, when they're in their own house, he starts f- physically abusing Carla. Um, and then when she threatens to leave him, she he reminds her he has a videotape of her Shit. killing her own sister. And so she has to stay. June 15th, 1991, um, Paul wakes Carla up in the middle of the night to tell her he has a surprise. He has kidnapped 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey out of her own backyard. So this is super fucked. Leslie had gone out for the day. I think I read something where it said that she was at a friend's funeral and then she stayed out past her curfew. Mm. So she probably, like, if her friend died, she got drunk with her friends or something. And when she got home, it was past her curfew her parents locked her out of the house. So she went into the backyard and that's when Paul Bernarder saw her and he lured her into his car with a cigarette, offering her a cigarette. She was like, sure. Um, And then he ends up kidnapping her, taking her to the house. Um, Paul and Carla videotaped themselves, raping and torturing Leslie for 24 hours, then strangle her, cut up her body and case it in cement and dump it in Lake Gibson. Fuck. Two weeks later, on June 29th, 1991, two fishermen spot some strange blocks in the lake as they're fishing. When they look closer, they see the human flesh is sticking out of the cement. Mm. It's the body of Leslie Mahaffey. On the same day that her body is found, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka get married in a Catholic church in Niagara-on-the-Lake in front of 100 friends and family what members. What in the... F- When in the special that I was watching, when it switched from that to the video of their (gasps) fucking fucked up early 90s wedding, it like the version of chills I got were like, this is insanity. These are people who are completely cut off from any reality of what they're doing. It was, it was horrifying. And the hair and the dress were so ugly. (laughs) I'm sure that was part of it, but okay. Um... Now Paul starts telling Carla that he wants her to invite Tammy's friends over to the house so that he can do the same thing to Tammy's friends. And she does. Mm. So they start drugging these girls that were friends with her sister. And a lot of these girls had no memory of anything happening. They only found out after the videotapes were found. And then they were informed that that had happened to them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Couldn't be darker. Um, okay, on April 16th, 
1992, Paul and Carla are driving around looking for a new victim. They're just full-on fucking predators. Um, they see a 15-year-old girl named Kristen French who's walking home from school. They pull into a church parking lot. Carla gets out holding a map, and then uh, when Kristen walks by, she waves her over like, sorry, I need to know directions, and they pull her into the car and kidnap her. Um, but this time there's witnesses. So people saw... People actually saw Kristen get taken, but when they report it to the police, multiple people say that it was a beige Camaro. Um, so immediately the police realize a girl's been kidnapped, a girl's body has just been found, mm-hmm. we've got something serious happening. They start, um, they put together what they called the Green Ribbon Task Force, dedicated to, to figuring out what the fuck is going on. And the Green River Task Force puts up this billboard immediately. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this car wanted in the abduction of Kristen French? And there's the, the uh, green ribbon hotline. The only problem was that Paul Bernardo drove a gold Nissan. He did not drive a beige Camaro. Mm. So it was a huge mislead. Um, and ni- April 30th, 1992, Kristen's body is found in a ditch in Burlington. She's clearly been tortured. Her hair has been cut off. Mm. Um, then the violence within the marriage begins to ex- escalate. Um, on January 5th, 1993, Carla goes to the emergency room. He is, uh, Paul's beating her with a flashlight. She has two black eyes that go from like here to here oh and they're God. dark purple. Um, she has broken ribs, extreme bruising. Um, before she leaves the house to go to the emergency room, uh, she tries to go find the videotapes and she can't find them anywhere. Um, 20 days later, January 25th, 1993, the DNA samples come back that Bernardo had given to the Scarborough police, and they match the DNA of the Scarborough rapist. Mm. So the Toronto police um, bring Carla in to talk to her, because they know you talk to the wife, you know, like, basically, they have to break the news to her and then try to get information. And it's our boy, FBI agent Greg McCreary, who leads the interview. (laughs) Um... Well, the, the, the Greeb Ribbon Task Force did, was there too, and right. they did the interview, and they knew everything that was going on. They knew. So they didn't accuse her of anything. Mm-hmm. They were more talking to her like they were being understanding and yeah. just basically trying to get information out of her. Um, so basically, once she talks to the police, she kind of knows that the, the, they're closing in on them. So she goes to an uncle, and she confesses everything. She tells the what? uncle everything that they've done. And the uncle says, you have to get a lawyer right now. Ugh. So... Um, she tells the lawyer, you have to get me full immunity, um, for my, uh, I'll testify against my husband, but you have to give me immunity. Um, uh, so then she ends up making a full confession saying that Paul is the Scarborough rapist, that he's responsible for the murders of Kristen French, Leslie Mahaffey, and her sister Tammy, and that she was forced to participate in all of it against her will. And then she says all the proof that they need is in their house on those videotapes if they just find them. So uh, on February 19th, 1993, a search warrant is executed in Bernardo home. Uh, there's It's a 71-day search. What the fuck? Yeah. They just kept looking because they couldn't fucking find these videotapes anywhere. Um, and they ended up not being able to find them in the house. So... Without evidence, without that kind of evidence, they only have Carla's testimony. So they have to plea bargain with her because yeah. she they need her right. uh, testimony. So 
She agrees to testify against him in, in exchange for a reduced sentence. The whole deal was kept secret from the public um, to ensure a fair trial for Paul Bernardo. Um, so uh, reporters were allowed in the courtroom the day of her sentencing, but they were only allowed, it was a, it was a publicity ban, they were called, they called it, and they were only allowed to report on what the charges were and what the sentence was. They weren't allowed to report on anything else wow, that happened. Wow, So, of course, this made all the press go crazy of like, how bad is this? This must be yeah. the worst thing ever because they never do stuff like this. Um, so in July of 1993, Carla Homolka pleads guilty to two counts of manslaughter, and she receives two 12-year sentences to be served concurrently. No. That was her deal. Um, she's sent to Kingston prison and then soon after she files for divorce. Uh, September, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like at this point, don't worry about it. Cut bait, baby. Yeah. Get out. The lawyer's like, I'm not also doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you can't pay me enough. She's like, Hey, every psychopath for themselves. I don't have a conscience, so I don't care about you. My husband. Okay. So. Um, in September 1994, Paul Bernardo's lawyer quits. <laughs> He's not going to represent him anymore. That's how bad it was. Well, it turns out that the reason that the cops couldn't find those videotapes inside their house is because Paul Bernardo's lawyer had gone into the house and taken them out. No. Yep, they were hidden up in just for future use. If you ever are looking for anything or need to hide anything, they were upstairs in a bathroom ceiling light fixture, up like hidden up above. What a dick. Yeah. The well, lawyer. Dick lawyer, but then when he quit, he gave the tapes to the next lawyer who was representing Paul Bernardo, and that guy's like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give these to the yeah. cops. The law. I mean, right? Yeah. Let me just say this, though. Not right away. Really? Like two weeks later. Oh, like thought about it. I, I mean, I don't know. I slept on it. I mean. <laughs> For two weeks. He thought about it, and then he was like, oh, I don't want to be the devil like the rest of these yeah. people. Um, okay. So uh, May 18th, 1995, Paul Bernardo's trial begins. Oh, oh, sorry. So once the police have the tapes, they have to look at them. They mm. see what's on them, and they realize that her story of Paul being fully responsible for everything is a total fucking lie and that she was happily participating in all of it in as coldly and horribly as he was and that, yes, she was clearly an abused wife but still on the videotape didn't seem to be having a problem with any of it. Yeah. And they then realized that they, they called it the deal with the devil mm -hmm. where they had just basically... They, they, They'd given her the easiest way out, and she was just as guilty as he was. Wow. Um, according to the videotape, which, you know, is pretty objective. Okay. Um, <laughs> so May 18th, 1995, Paul Bernardo's trial begins. The defense claims that Carla was the one who turned Paul into a murderer. He was just a plain rapist before. Oh, but she, she fucking Yoko ono that shit. She got in there, <laughs> and she fucked it up. Oh. And she should have a curfew. <laughs> <laughs> but then Carla gives her testimony. Um, and then on September 1st, 1995, the jury deliberates for eight hours and then finds Paul Bernardo guilty of all nine charges against him, including two counts of first-degree murder. Mm. Um, yeah. He's sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. No, that's not long enough. 1995. No. 
Do a little math. I can't. Okay. That's soon. Okay. Um, he was also, uh, a couple months later, declared a dangerous offender, which meant that he would likely spend the rest of his life in jail. Uh, don't clap so fast. Um, in 2001, an Ontario court uh, ordered that all evidence from the Paul Bernardo, Carla Homolka cases be destroyed. Mm. So... Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French's parents and a bunch of the officers and the detectives that worked on the case went down and witnessed all of the pictures and all of the videotape and all of the evidence from the entire case, watched it all get destroyed. Yeah. Um, which makes me very happy. Yeah. In 2005, 35-year-old uh, Carla Homolka was released from p- prison after serving a 12-year sentence. What the fuck? Don't it feels like you're booing us. <laughs> Um, she moved to Montreal. She changed her name to Leanne Teal. Oh, we know her, who she is? Leanne Teal. That's what I would have changed my name to if I had to move away. Sure. Because Teal's a great color, and Leanne is a name no one uses anymore. <laughs> she got married, and in 2007, she had a baby. No, no, uh-huh. no, 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 yeah. no. Um, it was recently discovered that she was volunteering at her child's school, and um, in June, that school just released a statement, not naming any names, but saying um, that they do not allow anyone with a uh, criminal record on their property. So she no longer volunteers for her child's school. Oh, do we have that? Stephen, oh. do you have that picture of this is modern day? Oh, shit. I wonder her did, at the school. Did everyone like recognize her and know who she was? I think time? there's people out there that are like, excuse me. I know who she yeah. is. Like I don't. There's. She couldn't move back to her hometown, which is what she was going to do when she first got out uh-uh. of jail. So she had to move to Montreal. What a monster! I mean, not that I'm sure it's great. I love French people, but <laughs> yeah, she had to move to Montreal. <laughs> she had to. Uh, FBI profiler Greg McCreary believes Carla Homolka may have been more psychopathic mm. than Paul Bernardo, um, being wow. that she was able to live with the murder of her own sister. Yeah. Just the, I mean, you can't compare psychopathy, I don't think, mm-hmm. but um, I like the idea that he was like, you know, something to think about. And the whole time I was, it's that thing where you're like, well, when battered women are, they, you know, you have battered spouse syndrome, you're in that situation, what would you do? Yeah. Or what would you be forced to do or what, whatever. Then I read this, this piece of information that I thought was pretty bone chilling. When Carla Homolka was questioned and fingerprinted by the police, um, they noticed that she was wearing a Mickey Mouse watch that looked a lot like the one Kristen French was wearing when she disappeared. <gasps> Just in case you had any worries about Carla that she was being persecuted. Uh, I don't, I don't think if you were in that situation that you'd just be like, oh, a trophy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fuck. Uh, fuck. My hands hurt because I'm gripping this microphone (laughs) so tightly because I'm like, oh my God. Sorry, it's almost over. No, no, no. I'm in a good way. (laughs) That's not a bad thing. Um, in 2017, Paul Bernardo, uh, that's this year. So. <laughs> he has served 22 years of his sentence already, mm-hmm. which means that they're now starting to discuss Mm-mm. parole issues. Um, despite being declared a dangerous offender, he is in 2018, or no, this year he's, he's eligible for day parole, which means <laughs> you get to leave jail and then come back in the evening. No, that's not how prison works. Well, <laughs> everyone. <clears throat> 
he, the hearing was supposed to be in August, and they pushed it to October. So, and it's I'm, happening on the stage right <laughs> now. Ladies and gentlemen. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could, as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. <laughs> Paul Bernardo's hearing uh, will likely take place at the Millhaven Institute in Bath, which is near Kingston, which is where he has been serving his life sentence. He is eligible for full parole in 2018. So we'll see how it goes. You guys, don't do it. Don't Please don't do please. it. Who here is deciding? <laughs> um, okay, so I just want to read you the final paragraph of Stacey May Fowle's article because um, I loved it so much. It's, it's this, quote, I came across a story that ran in the Star, published soon after the trial concluded, which argued that Bernardo was not the monster we wanted to believe him to be, but rather one of us a product of our culture, a man groomed with a pervasive, violent hatred of women. Mary Lou McPhadrin, a women's rights advocate, spoke in the ins of the insidious impact 
Bernardo had on our community, that he had created an ambient trauma, even for those who had not been directly victimized by him. It is a wound that will probably never heal. The Bernardo case has been played out as a titillating drama, she said, and we fail to understand what it's done to us. Wow. That's it. So fucked up. Really terrible. You made up for episode three, I think. <laughs> I can't say sorry any more than what I just did. That's all I can do. Let's, um... No, that's... Um... <laughs> Let's go back to episode three. Stephen, take this note. Take out Karen's story and put this in, just out of the blue. Wait, can I retell the whole reason I told that story in the first place? That story of my friends? Oh, yeah, I don't even remember. Sorry. Is this, like, this one last thing? Ooh, no, your hands I'm are so cold and dry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I forgot because I don't. Fast. Okay, my friend. So Paul Greenberg, who was on uh, a sketch show called The Vacant Lot, you should know him and love him. He is from here. Hilarious man. Now he lives in Los Angeles. You might hate him because oh. of that. Anyhow, he's the one that told me the story. His mother was an artist, and she lived in a high-rise apartment building that had a pool at the. It, uh, on the roof. And she, it, she lived in Scarborough at the time that all of these things were going on, uh, in the beginning of it, not the, not the couple's, uh, schoolgirl killer time in the Scarborough rapist time. Mm-hmm. She goes up on to swim one day. It's daytime. There's nobody up there and she's doing laps. She is, um, <gasps> I believe at the time she was in her late sixties or early seventies. She's doing laps in the pool and a young man comes out um, onto the roof as well. She doesn't really pay attention. She's just doing her laps. And then she finally looks up and realizes he's just standing at the end of the pool, staring at her. And as she's doing her laps, it's like he's just standing over her, watching her swim. And she is super freaked out by it and really scared. And it's getting to the point he starts walking along the side of the pool mm. as she swims. Uh-huh. And so she's shitting and it's not the way she would tell the story, I'm sure. <laughs> Until the fucking roof door bursts open and like three families with Ugh. kids run out and she's like, who, I'm out of here. Okay, so she goes right back down to her apartment and sketches his face. <gasps> right. She's like, uh-uh. Well, when that, when that Scarborough rapist picture came out, she went and pulled the sketch out and showed Paul and she's like, that's the man that was on the roof, and it was the exact same guy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Chills. I know. I love a first-hander. I'm sorry. No, I love absolutely. a first-hander. Absolutely. It's the best. Great job. Thank you. That's okay. Too much. There's too much clapping. It's too much clapping. It went from us needing it and loving it and making making up for a lot of love we lost as children to just being a little too much. The clapping. To ruining our own clapping. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that extremely, extremely dark story. I am always impressed by how Karen can make it so funny, even though it is truly about the most depraved people on the planet. But let's get to our next story that I've chosen, which is from My Favorite Murder, episode 63. The episode is called Steven's Tuxedo. And this is the story that uh, the delightfully talented Georgia Hardstark told about Joseph Edward Duncan 
And this is another crime, as I mentioned, that we covered on our podcast because SVU did cover it on their television show. And um, it's also, you know, a very harrowing, difficult story, but really, really interesting. And Georgia tells it perfectly. Uh, Ready for a serial killer? I am. Real horrible guy. Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. Joseph Edward Duncan III. The third, the way I looked at you when I said that, (laughs) was born on February 25th, 1963 in Tacoma, Washington. And I said that he looks like the actor Ben Mendelsohn, who is the older brother from Bloodline. Remember that guy's got kind of a lisp and he's like a broad, he's like an actor and he's kind of well hot. Bloodline, was he the bad one? Yeah. He's the one everyone's worried about? Yes. That guy's amazing. Yeah. Okay. He looks like him. So okay. like creepy skinny, just so you have an idea. Okay. So in 1976, he's 15 years old and he commits his first recorded sex crime. He, at 15, he rapes a nine-year-old boy at gunpoint. Oh, fuck. Yeah. I said I was going to raves at 15 and he was raping children at gunpoint. Fuck. Yeah. What yeah. happened to him? I don't know. And I can't find a lot of information on it. Okay. So clearly not something horrible. Yeah. Hit his fucking head. I mean, and then he went to a boy's... I mean, it's like they go to juvie, then they get raped. It's it's so terrible. And their mom like... Oh, I don't want to get as gross as I feel like it. I mean, we really could say the worst things in the world and be right. Okay. The following... I want to say it, but it's so horrifying that like I... Say it and then Stephen will bleep it. Okay. I read somewhere and maybe it was Ted Bundy's mom or some like some killer's mom that like when he she would take him to go to the bathroom, she would pinch his penis as a kid. Mm-hmm. I think that's Ed go. Gein. Is that Ed Gein? So he wouldn't go? I don't know to like if he didn't do it, he she would get mad at him and pinch. And it's like, how do you not get have a sexual fucking sadist on your hands? Yes. On your gross hands. On your filthy, disgusting hand. Yeah. No, that's horrifying. On your penis pinching hands. I'm pretty sure that's Ed Gein's mother. She was out of her yeah, fucking mind. Yeah, that's right. Didn't he? He killed her, right? Uh, no, she died of natural causes. He kept her in the house right. and played with her body, and then like wore her face in the moonlight. <laughs> pretty sure. Sorry, Steve. Well, that's romantic. <laughs> well, shit. Nipple belt. Yeah. So unbleep now. Okay. Yeah. Nipple belt. Is that him? Yeah. That's our guy. Should we give a shout out to the girl who, yes. <laughs> fuck man, we're going to need to post this, but like we got this like gift once and it was a box and there were these like this like crochet belt in it. And we were like, okay, all right. We are yarn crochet belt. Was that in Oakland? I think it was the Oakland show. No, no, no. It was sent here. Oh, oh, because, sent. Okay. Yeah. Because then the, you guys left and I went to take a photo of it. And as I'm looking through the lens, I realized that it's a crocheted nipple belt. <laughs> And it's like every different color nipples, like different races of nipples. And it's, and I just lost my mind in like joy of like how creative, like that's the description of murderinos is like our listeners is someone crocheted a fucking multicultural nipple belt. A nipple belt giving Ed Gein that shout out. Also the, the fact that you had to have that realization alone. It's actually almost perfect. Yeah. Cause it's that like, <gasps> Growing it horror. was horror. We were we pulled that Happy. thing out. And we're like, is it a is it a cat toy? What like we this? were just like whipping yeah. it around. We had no idea. And then I, it just made me so happy when I realized <laughs> how awful it was in the hat cutest way. Yeah, because you couldn't tell. You had to. It was like a magic eye poster. You really had to stare at it for a while <laughs> to understand the hideous dolphins. I gotta post it. Okay. Anyway, 
The following year, uh, Joseph Duncan is arrested for driving a stolen car, and that's when he's sentenced as a juvenile and sent to Dislin's Boys Ranch in Tacoma, which you know is probably a hellhole nightmare um he tells his therapist when he's there that he had bound and sexually assaulted six boys and he also tells the therapist that he had raped around 13 younger boys by the time he was 16 what the fuck yeah so he's a serial rapist yeah can you imagine losing count he said around 13 (sighs) boys what does that therapist fucking go home that night and drink they're just Cyanide. like now i become a sea captain <laughs> yeah, i'm done with this bullshit i'm gonna be a librarian now to the lighthouse he said <laughs> goodbye i'm gonna get a cat you know you know maybe just a ton of cats like 30 cats yeah just pet them just surround myself with cats yep uh, in 1980, still in Tacoma, he steals guns from a neighbor and abducts a 14 year old boy again rapes him at gunpoint um, and for that, he's sentenced to 20 years in prison, but he's released on parole in 94 after serving 14 years. Um, then he's arrested in 96 for a mar- for marijuana use, but he's released on parole a few weeks later, but with new restrictions. Um, and then in 97, he's around 34. He's arrested in Kansas and returned to prison after violating the terms of his parole. But he's released from prison three years later in July 2000 with time off for good, good old good, good behavior. Old good behavior for yeah. the serial rapists yeah, of be children. Good in prison. Clean your fucking tray at the canteen Whew. at mess at mess hall, and you can leave. Uh, so that okay. So in the summer of 2014, he's accused of molesting a six-year-old boy at a park in Detroit Lake, Minnesota. Um, but he's not captured until March of 2005, and he's held on $15,000 bond. So there's a dude who's a businessman from Fargo who somehow Duncan had become acquainted with who helped him post bail. Huh. $15,000. I wonder what brand of pedophile he was. Yeah, allegedly, allegedly. Businessman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very allegedly. Yeah. And, and if he wasn't, he must fucking hate himself now. True. What if he was just trying to be like a good Samaritan? Yeah. Here's a guy down on his luck. Oh, he says he didn't. He said he didn't molest a six year old boy at a park. So maybe he didn't. And I'm going to spend half of some people's salary or getting out. Anyways, Duncan skips down. Okay. Two months later in 2005, uh, Kootenai County, Idaho, authorities discover the bodies of Brenda Grown, 40, her boyfriend, and her 13-year-old son. They're in their family home near Coeur d'Alene, mm-hmm. and they've been bound and died of blunt force trauma to the head. Wow. Um, and Brenda's two other children, Shasta, who's eight, and Dylan, who's nine. I know, oh my God, I hate this one so much. I know. It's so horrible. Okay. I know. I almost didn't do it because it's so bad. No, I you have to do it some though. of the shit out, but I didn't know that this guy had so much background to him. I didn't, but it makes perfect sense. Of course he does, but oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, it's just one of those stories that you can't fucking believe is real. Yes. I, I can still see the TV when I was watching the news and them showing the foot, the CCTV or Don't whatever foot. Okay. Yes. Sorry. I totally know what you're going to say, but you're okay. going to give away no, the ending. Tell your story. I'm <laughs> no, so we'll sorry. talk about it, but I, I saw it too. And it's, it just burned in my mind. Yeah. Okay. So Shasta is eight. Dylan is nine. They're missing. They're missing from the house. And the three others, the three older people are dead. 
Um, and so they issue an Amber Alert and they comb the area and they can't find the kids until six weeks later in July 2005, Shasta is recognized from her Amber Alert by a waitress, a manager and two customers at a Denny's. In, but then they're back in Coeur d'Alene. Yeah. Is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Coeur d'Alene. The workers freak the fuck out, immediately phone the police and they position themselves to prevent Duncan from leaving. Um, police officers arrive at the restaurant. They arrest Duncan without incident and Shasta's taken to the hospital to be reunited with her dad. And so the footage we're talking about is them walking into the fucking Denny's and she's got her arms crossed. She's like this little blonde girl. He's this creep who looks like John Mendelssohn, Ben Mendelssohn. <laughs> and she's got her arms crossed and it's clear something is wrong. Yes. And you wonder if you had seen that, would you have thought something was going on too? They must have, because that many people, I remember reading about the waitress coming to the table and being like, I don't like the feel here. Are you okay? Uh, Yeah. What's going on? And I think she waited. Did he go to the bathroom? Maybe. There was some moment she had with Shasta, I believe, before where she was like, this isn't good. And she called the police. Well, what's so weird about it is you, I have to wonder, they went back to the town they were from. So everyone in that town must have known intimately what both what well maybe they didn't know who he was yet but what she looked like yes so there was another sighting of them you know in another state that they later realized happened and the per, the per, the woman who worked at the store it was like a gas station was like i thought it might be her but i wasn't sure so i didn't do anything about it Mm-mm. and it's like well someone in your town would have done something and it also tells you like if you have a bad feeling about something don't worry about hurting the dad's fucking feelings. If this child looks in distress, at least talk to one other person about it. Yeah. If you, if you don't send up every red flag, you ever feel bad feelings, but there's definitely, if you're in tune enough, there's when you know something's wrong, you know, it's wrong and trust yourself. I've always thought that like, if I see a kid who looks uncomfortable or in distress or not, not feeling like they're where they're supposed to be. It's okay for me to go up to a kid and be like, Hey, what's your name? You know, like engage with the kid. You know, I'm not a fucking dude, so it's not creepy, but like, <laughs> like, don't do that. If you're a guy, tell a woman to do that. But you know, to be like, what's your name? And if you fucking send something is wrong, like you can just tell by body language with a, of a kid. Yeah. Something isn't right. I mean, there wish there should be. Yeah. I wish there was some kind of like set process or keyword, yeah. you know, uh, Whatever. Uh, this, the, yeah. Listen, write down everyone's license plate. Every creepy dude's right, license plate at all Just times. Just take the time. You don't need to work. Quit your job. Get a spiral notebook. Sit in front of a gas station. And just write down license plates for a while. <laughs> yeah. Done. But I got, I adore that Denny's waitress. Oh, my God. I just, because you know that, first of all, if they work, she's probably working the night shift. She's seen some Looney Tunes totally. people. You know she doesn't call the cops every time she sees a scraggly no. Mendelssohn type. <laughs> No, we shouldn't involve that actor at all. The poor guy. He's like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> fuck you guys. No, we just got him fucking cast on the Lifetime movie of this motherfucking case. You're That's welcome, right. Ben Mendelsohn. We're creating work. You're welcome. Ba 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 ba. Hospital. All right, here get. Here's where it gets awful. So Shasta tells investigators that the night of her abduction, her mother had called her into the living room from the bedroom where she had been sleeping, and she saw Duncan. Like the, the Duncan was like, call your kids in here right now. She sees Duncan wearing black gloves and holding a gun. He ties 
her mother's hands with uh, nylon zip ties, as well as the mother's fiance and the, her brother Slade. Then he takes Dylan, Shasta and her, bro- her little brother Dylan out, to the, out of the house. They get inside his stolen rental car and then Duncan goes back into the house. She hears her mother's fiance scream and then sees her injured older brother staggering away from the entrance to the home. Um, but she didn't witness Duncan bludgeoning the three of them to death. He bludgeoned them to death? Tied them up and bludgeoned them. Fuck. When Shasta's asked where her brother Dylan is, she said, in heaven, there may be some evidence down in the Lolo forest because that's where we were. What does that mean? On July 4th, 2005, Dylan's remains were discovered at a campsite near St. Regis, Montana. He'd been sexually assaulted and then killed with a shot in the head after which his body had been burned and Shasta fucking witnessed the whole thing. Oh, God. I know. Um, Duncan had also filmed Dylan's final hours and Duncan can be audibly heard in the video, which was shown to the fucking jury. Can you fucking imagine how much therapy you'd need after that? Oh, my God. Saying, the devil likes to watch children suffer and cry. Shasta's also repeatedly tortured and sexually assaulted, but supposedly he falls in love with her and decides to return her home, which is why they were back in her town. What a monster. Monster. Yeah. Duncan later confesses that he had entered the home while the family slept with the express intention of murdering the parents and kidnapping the children. He claims he, quote, wanted, he wanted, quote, revenge against society for sending him to prison for 20 years for sexually assaulting a younger boy. Uh, who was 14 years old when he himself was only 16 year old. So he wants revenge against society for being sent to prison for sexually assaulting. For being a rapist. Yep. Yeah, that's not clear thinking. No. It's not logical thinking. You're not taking responsibility for your actions. You're not fucking... You're not cool. You're... (sighs) Dugson... You're the devil. You're the devil. The devil's like, dude, calm down. (laughs) Fuck. Can you skip to the part where he gets murdered in jail? Please tell me. The devil's like, hey, man, I hurt fucking corrupt attorneys, not... (sighs) Yeah. Sorry, corrupt attorneys. Sorry, corrupt attorneys. So he's subsequently charged with murdering Dylan as well as the three other family members. During his incarceration, authorities are able to link Duncan to the disappearance of Anthony Michael Martinez, who was 10 years old when he went missing on April 4th, 97, while he was playing with friends in the front yard of his home in Beaumont, California. Fuck. A man approached the group, asked for help finding a missing kitten while holding out a photo of a cat as well as a dollar bill. Uh, and two of the children ran away in fear and the kidnapper pulls a knife out, grabs, uh, Anthony and flees in a white car with wet red pinstripes and no hubcaps. Um, after two weeks search, Martinez's body is found nude and partially decomposed in Indio on April 19th, 97. He had been sexually assaulted and bound with duct tape. Uh, a composite sketch is made of the suspect, uh, and a partial fingerprint, but the case goes cold. And then when he, when he is incarcerated, Riverside authorities are able to match the partial fingerprint taken to uh, Duncan. And um, so they officially announce his connection. He pleads guilty in 2011. The plea agreement carries a mandatory life sentence, although he won't get, uh, he won't get death, the death penalty for it in California because he pleads guilty. Uh, Duncan also confessed to two additional murders, Samija White, 11, and her sister Carmen uh, Cubias, 9, who were last seen 
leaving a Seattle, Washington hotel to get cigarettes at a nearby restaurant for an older brother. Oh, no. I know, babies. Police said that they don't, they don't know whether the girls ran away or were victims of foul play at the time. Right. Of course, a fucking nine-year-old is running away. And an 11-year-old. Um, then on July 6, 96, that happened on July 6, 96. Then their remains were found on February 10th, 1998 in Bothell, Washington, uh, by a transient living in an abandoned barn. All three murders occurred while Duncan was on parole. Ugh. Of those murders, Duncan has only been charged in the California case. In all, he's been convicted in Ohio for kidnapping and murder of the three victims, for which he was giving six life sentences, in federal court for kidnapping Shasta and Dylan, and for murdering Dylan, he was given three death sentences and three life sentences, and in the state of California for kidnapping and murdering Anthony Martinez, for which he was given two life sentences. Is he still in jail? He's still in jail. He will be forever. Let me double check really quickly if he's still alive. Hold on. Yeah, because he's still how, alive. How? Unless they are keeping him in solitary confinement. Has he not been killed? How has he not been killed by inmates? That's like, he is exactly the example of a jailhouse justice type totally. of situation. Look, want to see his picture? No. Oh, God. I, ugh. Steven, you better watch that mustache. <laughs> Because we are looking at a serious. Oh. Um, I'm doubting the mustache. <laughs> yeah. Although um, Murderino's got me a mustache switchblade comb. Oh yeah. Oh, so okay. I can keep it in check. Okay. okay. Good. Yes, please good. do. Yeah, that he's oh the worst face. Not only is he still alive, he's blogging from prison. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Fuck. Well, so he blog. He has a blog called The Fifth Nail, and it's something about how like Jesus was crucified with four nails, and this is the yep. fifth nail. Some bullshit. Oh, I know all about that fifth nail. Do you? <laughs> um, and so he can't blog from prison, but he he blogs about his day to day life as a sex offender. But so he, and he denies being a pedophile. But so he sends his blog post and writing to people on the outside who post it, and like there's some people out there doing his fucking bidding. Probably pedophiles, right? Probably other pedophiles. Yeah, perhaps. Well, either way, you shouldn't. You should, you're no good, downright fucking piece of shit. It's so funny that case, that little girl, and the thing she went through. People, I feel like anybody that was like conscious around that time, 
paid attention to anything around that time. It also because it was early enough so that there wasn't like nowadays there's so much awful shit going on as we know everywhere all the time. Uh, they're, they're closing down nature. They're closing down (laughs) schools. They're closing down, protecting people who need protection. They're closing it all down. It's insanity. It happens every day, but there was a time and I used to think about it a lot in the nineties where we had it. We were just like fat cats. There was nothing going on. It was before we got into that first war. Um, Clinton, it was Clinton. No, he was, it was the Clinton days. It may have been later than that, but, but still it was like, there wasn't. So when something like that came on the news, it was heart stopping. It was like, you've got to be kidding me. How did this happen? Yeah. No, I mean, and even, even in the, just the last couple of years, we hear, we hear about every single one of them, especially when you're into fucking true crime. Yeah. We're, I'm just constantly reading about these things and we're just constantly looking at, but back then it was harder to find those things. And the detail that you can get now and yes. the photos. And so it was just this glimpse that you would get. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. God, that's... Yeah. Sorry. So that's... um. No, I mean, yeah. that's like... That was a big one. And it's interesting to know that that was a person that started doing that. That was a that was an internally and intensely damaged individual yeah. that like started pretty bad. And it got way, way, way worse. Right. Somewhere along the way you know there could have been intervention or just something different could have happened i think it's when eventually hopefully people start taking rape as a crime more seriously as a real as as something that this isn't something to have your hands slapped and walked away from and that a lot of people that do it uh do it over and over again and intend to do it over and over again. That's a serious problem with a person. And it's not, I feel like there's a lot of people who just think rape is someone who wants to have sex really bad. A rapist is someone who's just looking for sex. When, if you think about it in in a way, which it actually is, which is this fucking violent, insane mind who needs to overpower and hurt and fucking ruin someone that's a, that is a criminal who should not be allowed on the streets after three years of good behavior in prison. And how often do they escalate? I mean, yeah. how many stories do we tell that start off with a person doing it? She, he raped a girl in his town and yeah. then da da da. And then he moved to this town and then suddenly he's murdering the people yeah. he's raping. I mean, that's, it's the story every time. Yeah. I feel like it's going to catch up slowly as long as we don't is it? keep, well, I mean, I feel like the more people who talk about it, yeah. the more people who have conversations, but also the more like the Brock Turner. Um, I was just thinking, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. That, uh, the swimmer from Stanford yeah. who got released because, you know, nobody wanted to mess up his swimming career and he raped a girl. So, so violently, um, who I think he drugged, I think, I don't know if that ever yeah. came out like to be the truth, but that's the theory. She was incapacitated. She was incapacitated. She, and when she told the story, it's like, she's at a party and all of a sudden she's waking up behind a dumpster. And the two men who witnessed it were so upset. The two men, grown men were crying and so upset of what they witnessed. That's not something that you go, okay, well don't do this anymore. Who would do that in the first, it's like, we have to start treating it and talking about it as the, 
extremely violent criminal act that it is. And also, stop fucking using the phrase sexual assault. Stop, I was thinking the same thing. Stop using euphemisms. If it's rape, it's rape. Some people say, like, you know, sexual assault, it's not sex. Don't use the word sex when it's just rape. Not, yeah. Unconsexual, un- non-consensual sex, sex, yeah. Non-consensual sex is sex. Is rape. Is rape. That's right. Sex is between two consenting adults. So don't fucking call it that. Also, date rape is rape. Date rape is rape that doesn't mean it's, it's just rape. nice and chill rape nope it's rape also there's it wasn't a pre-agreement that that agreement got broken which is what date rape alludes to right. that's bullshit you went on a date what did you yeah someone got upset no this person is a rapist yeah this you person... don't rape people unless you're a rapist don't rape people oh man i mean i think we're coming down pretty hard on an anti-rape stance i think it's clear that we're anti-rape. <laughs> and we're saying it to, to our listeners yeah. as if we we're have like, to convince them of yeah. it. You guys, stop it. Stop it. We're like, yes to fucking crocheted nipple belts, no to rape. <laughs> Just Do you listen. know where we stand? We're going to tell you how it works. There's no gray area. Oh, man. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. And as a little update, because Georgia told that story a few years ago, uh, that man is now passed on. So we have one less horrific serial killer out in the world. So just some information for you guys in case you were going to look him up and see what's he up to now. He's dead. Um, And now for a little bonus, I actually did a hometown murder. And I have to say, this speaks to the popularity of this podcast because I have, not to brag, been on television. I have guested on many podcasts. I have done a lot of fun things. I have never gotten so many messages from people that I have not spoken to since high school as I did when I appeared on episode 16 of My Favorite Murder doing my hometown murder. People really love this podcast, myself included. Uh, so as a special little bonus treat, we're going to play my hometown murder from episode 16. Okay, so this is not quite a hometown thing, but I did go to college an hour and 15 minutes from my hometown uh, in Connecticut. And I went to college with a girl whose husband mysteriously disappeared from their honeymoon cruise. Uh, they were uh, on this cruise together. And the I think the saddest part of the story usually when I tell it is that if they hadn't gotten so blacked out balls to the wall wasted, this probably never would have happened. Um, because they got really drunk. They separated. They were rumors. They were like hanging out with these Czech teenagers or something like that. I don't know what they were doing, probably just partying with them. Uh, and they got separated and another girl on the boat took a picture of a huge blood splatter stain on the, on the deck of the ship, which is, on this big dateline, there's a whole dateline report on this. And, uh, and uh, so it was obviously something happened, but his body was never recovered. They were in the middle of, I believe the Caribbean or the Mediterranean. Like, obviously he was shark bait. Like they probably weren't going to find anything, but, um, she was, you know, on the talk show circuit on with like Oprah and like Scarborough country and all these shows. And I think people found that she did not appear to be a sympathetic enough wife. Like she wasn't bawling, crying. She wasn't, people thought maybe she married him for, you know, it's like everybody's imagination takes off, but like, uh, I don't think he had a ton of money to speak of. So it wasn't like an insurance killing that. I don't really actually knowing her. I really don't think she had anything to do with, um, this disappearance slash murder. Um, but it was pretty scandalous. And I was actually on Dateline when they 
when they were investigating it, I was working at NBC. One of my friends worked at Dateline and was like, does anybody here go to this college in Connecticut? And I was like, oh, I went there. And they were like, do you know this girl whose husband disappeared? I was like, yeah, we played softball together. Holy and she was shit. like, oh my God, they really want to interview you on Dateline. <gasps> and I was like, okay. Like, do I get to be on TV? I'm in. Like, I was <laughs> all in. And then I went on and I just sort of talked generally about her and it was so embarrassing because first of all I thought they were gonna do my hair and makeup they don't do that and second of all they like took a bunch of b-roll of me like walking downstairs slowly and they took an old picture of me and my softball team that this girl is in where my eyes are closed and I'm maybe the fattest I've ever been in my entire life and I was like just don't focus on my face and Dateline was like oh we gonna focus on your face and they went right to my face after that and then went to her face so you know I wasn't super happy with Dateline's production but it was a really it's a really crazy sort of unsolved case that um is also interesting because his parents and i believe jen the girl he was married to who i knew were going trying to take on the cruise line because those if i don't know anyone that's been on a cruise like there's cameras everywhere and they acted like they had nothing on tape of like where this guy was or what happened or anything. Like how did this blood splatter stain get like this? It was a huge stain on the deck and it's just very scandalous that they won't like kind of let this information out because people think they're scared about getting sued or whatever. So I know that they made a lifetime movie about it. I know there's a dateline about it. You can search into it more. Uh, the dateline, if you want to Google Kara Clank and few clues found in honeymoon disappearance, will take you right to the link because it's a very scary Google result for myself. Well, and that was my hometown murder. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you guys for listening. I'm Kara Clank, again, the host of That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast, along with my co-host, the hilarious Lisa Traeger. Our podcast comes out every Tuesday on Exactly Right. And um, give us a listen if you're so inclined. And before I leave, I just want to tell you, stay sexy and do not get murdered. Elvis, do you want a cookie?